passage for this morning is Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. Uh, If you would, please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Again, that's Matthew 13, 24 to 43. As I explained last week, we're currently preparing for our study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians by exploring the concept of mission as it is revealed in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. Let's go ahead and begin our time this morning by reading today's passage together. Matthew says this, Matthew 13, 24 to 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. A number of years ago I uh, worked as a waiter. And a waiter's job, of course, is not just to serve his customers food, but to make them happy. To help them have a, a pleasant dining experience. In fact, that's really the only way you're going to earn any money as a waiter. It's by making your customers happy. A waiter or waitress makes their money off tips, and if you've ever worked as a waiter or waitress for very long, then you know that big tips come from happy customers. And by this, I don't just mean that the customers will give you tips when they're happy with you. No, I mean you get big tips when they're happy, period. And that's because when people are happy, they're more liberal with their spending. They're more prone to be relaxed with their money when they're relaxed, period. 
And so if you're trying to maximize your income as a waiter or waitress, then your goal when you approach a table is not only to convince your customers that you're doing a good job, that you're being attentive to them, you're actually just trying to put them in a good mood. You're trying to put them at ease, help them feel relaxed, because when they feel at ease, when they're relaxed, when they're happy, then generally speaking, at the end of the shift, you're going to walk out of the door with a few more dollar bills in your pocket. And I want to be clear here, this isn't a bad thing, right? There's nothing underhanded or deceptive about this. Presumably, that's what you want as a customer. You want to have a good time when you go out to eat. But what this means is that a good waiter or waitress, the one who's working hard to make the most money that they can during their shift, that waiter or waitress will very quickly become a student of human behavior. Their goal from the moment you sit down is to make you feel relaxed and happy as as much as you possibly can while bringing your food. And they've studied people. And over the course of a thousand tables, they've learned what makes different types of people happy and how to pick up on the cues from a customer about what type of customer they are from the moment they sit down and what it is that's going to make them happy. By the time I stopped working as a waiter, I was still learning the tricks of the trade. I hadn't figured it all out yet. Veteran servers could still out-earn me with half the effort simply because they knew how to work a customer. Still, I tried to get better at it. I tried to get better at reading people and adjusting my service to the type of customer I had. And as I tried to learn, it wasn't long before I observed the phenomenon of the extremely hungry customer. This is the type of customer who comes in on a Sunday afternoon in the middle of the post-church lunch rush. They've just sat through a long service that brought a few minutes over into lunchtime. Uh, They got to the restaurant later than normal, and then they had to wait for the church crowd to kind of file out before they could get a table. They sit down with three kids who are restless. They have a baby who's extremely hungry, and the baby's squirming and fussy, and quite honestly, right, the parents aren't much better off. And you can read it on their face from the moment they sit down. It's in their shoulders. They're tired, they're irritated, and most of all, they're extremely impatient. You learn very quickly that these tables are the very worst to walk up to at the beginning of a meal because you're already starting in the hole. They're mad at the pastor because he ran along with his message. They're mad at their kids for making too much noise. They're mad at their spouse for not doing a better job of taking care of the kids. They're mad at the restaurant for making them wait. And they're mad at you for existing, right? And for being so happy about it. It's just a no-win situation. But then you watch as this incredibly strange phenomenon begins to unfold over the next 20 to 25 minutes. You walk up and greet them with a smile, and at first they just, they just snap off a drink order without even acknowledging you. They don't say hello, acknowledge that you exist, and they just say, this is what I want, and so you rush off and get them a drink. And when you come back, they're not ready for their order yet because the kids had to go to the bathroom while you're gone, so they kind of blurt that out at you, tell you to give them a few more minutes, and you leave and come back. By the time you come back, they're still angry, but a little less so. They make eye contact with you this time. They acknowledge you when you speak. You take their order and you bring them their meal. By the third or fourth time you stop by their table, they're starting to get in a good mood. Again, they're not necessarily happy just yet, but they don't want to bite your head off anymore. You know, they might even take the time to have some polite conversation with you. By the time you drop off the check, it's even better. And if you're lucky, you may even get a smile. It's a fascinating thing to watch. You get to see their demeanor completely transform 
in the course of about 30 minutes. And when you've watched this happen enough times, it's no secret what the cause of this transformation is. It's food. The real problem, when they sat down, it wasn't their pastor or their kids or their spouse or even the restaurant. It was their empty stomachs. That was what was making them so irritable, so difficult to deal with. They had a desire that wasn't being met. They wanted food, and until you satisfied their desire, they were going to be impossible to make happy. So the goal with this type of customer, obviously, is, is just to get them something to eat as soon as possible because the more time that they have to eat, the less time they have to be dissatisfied with you, the better tip you're going to get at the end of that table. And this means that the key to dealing with this type of customer, clearly, is to determine as soon as possible that they're an extremely hungry customer. And I soon learned that the very best of all the indicators that could possibly reveal this type of customer was their impatience. You watch them take their seat, and if they're impatient with their family, before you ever have to walk up to the table, if they're impatient with their family, then you're probably dealing with a hungry customer. If they're by themselves and you come up to the table and they're short with you right off the bat before you've ever said a word to them, that's the hungry customer. The problem isn't what you said. It isn't you. It's their stomach. So go and fill that stomach as fast as you can. This is why I say that you can learn a lot about a person by what makes them impatient. That was a lesson I learned while waiting tables. When a person is impatient, it's because they have a desire that isn't being satisfied. There's something that they want that they're not getting, and this manifests itself through their impatience. They want it so badly, they want it now. They don't want to have to wait. So if you meet an impatient person, you already know the situation. There's this incongruity between what they want and what they have. And now it's only up to you to figure out what that is, what they're impatient for. And if you can figure that out, then you know what's driving their decision making. I know that's what I was surprised to learn as I waited tables. I knew that we all liked food. I knew that we all needed food. But I was amazed to see just how quickly we will sin, how quickly we'll even hurt people we love just because of food. James says it this way in James 4, 1 to 3. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, what you're impatient for reveals a lot about you. It reveals what your wants are what your desires are, it reveals your priorities, the things that you think are important. And so with that in mind, I would ask you, what are you impatient for? What do you want to see happen right now? We're currently in Matthew 13, and in this chapter, Jesus responds to Israel's hardened rejection of his ministry in Matthew 12 with a series of parables that are aimed at teaching his disciples about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Our passage for today is Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. And in this passage, Jesus tells a total of three different parables. He begins this passage with uh, telling the parable of the weeds in verses 24 to 30. He then goes on to explain this parable in verses 36 to 43. And then nested into the middle of this parable and its explanation are these other two parables. There's the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of of the leaven, along with another statement explaining the purpose of these parables in verses 31 to 35. 
And at first, this can seem like an odd kind of structure to separate the parable of the weeds from its explanation by inserting these other two parables in between. And this is especially unusual because Matthew is usually very keen on rearranging the events, uh, the order of the events in Jesus' ministry in order to better explain their meaning. He doesn't do that here. And that can seem strange at first. That is until you realize that all three parables in this section address the same issue, a factor which is preserved through the nesting of these middle two parables. These three parables all tell the same story. They all address the same issue. And Matthew preserves this point by presenting them together as a package that must be opened up at the same time. They share a joint theme, and that theme, as we'll see both this week and next, is patience. Patience. There was this expectation in Israel at this time that once the Messiah had come, that the kingdom of God would come shortly thereafter. And in this next set of parables, Jesus is going to explain that the kingdom of heaven isn't going to come with the kind of speed that was so commonly expected. It wasn't going to burst onto the scene overnight. It was actually going to be a very slow affair. This was new information to the disciples. They hadn't known about this aspect of the kingdom before. Well, in this parable, Jesus is telling them about it in order to urge them to be patient and wait for the kingdom's arrival. And what I think is perhaps most striking about these parables is what they reveal about us through the things that we're impatient for, or perhaps even more precisely through the things that we're not impatient for. Well, what I want to do is split this section into two parts, the, the parable of the weeds being one part and the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven being the other. And I want to look at the first of those parts this week and then the second part next week And the question that I want you to ask yourself as we explore these parables together is, what am I impatient for? What am I impatient for? Once again, Jesus is delivering these parables to instruct his disciples that they must be patient about certain aspects of the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to ask yourself, am I impatient for these things as well? Would Jesus have needed to share these parables with me? if I was there among his disciples? Or would I be so unconcerned about the issues that these parables address that they actually would have fallen flat, that I would have even been confused if he had told me these things without any sort of explanation? Let's go ahead and begin with the first parable and its explanation. Let's read the the telling of the parable itself and the explanation one more time. Once again, that's Matthew 13, 24 to 43. The parable is told in verses 24 to 30, and then the explanation comes in verses 36 to 43. It says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of uh, the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Now, verse 36, right? Here comes the explanation. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Last week we explored the parable of the sower in verses 1 to 23 of this chapter. And if you recall in this parable, Jesus spoke of a sower who went out to sow seeds which fell on various types of ground, which accepted the seed with varying degrees of success. These soils, of course, represented the various spiritual conditions that different people are in when they hear the gospel and how it affects their receptivity to the gospel. Essentially, the parable explained why some people accept the gospel and why others don't and how to tell the difference between those who merely hear the message without accepting it and those who both hear and accept the message. In today's parable, Jesus keeps the farming theme going once again, talking about a farmer who goes and sows seed in his field. Only this time it would appear that it's not actually the farmer himself who's sowing the seed. Rather, he has workers, slaves, who go out and sow seed in the field for him. The farmer sows this wheat crop in verse 24. But then this crisis occurs in verse 25. An enemy comes in while his men are sleeping, which is to say he sneaks in undetectable while no one's watching, and he sows weeds in his field. More specifically, it would appear he sows a specific kind of weed called the darnel weed. That's what the Greek term for the word weed indicates here. This is not just any weed. These are darnel weeds. And just so you know, darnel produces a poisonous grain that could ruin the weed if they're mixed in with the rest of the crop. And not only that, but they're also known to carry a fungus capable of attacking and damaging the wheat crop that's surrounding it. So it would appear that this is not just some sort of random weed. This isn't just a relatively harmless grass seed or something that's being sown just to stunt the growth of the wheat crop. This is a seed sown in an attempt to attack and destroy the wheat crop. And what makes this weed so dangerous is that it actually would have looked very much like the wheat crop that it was sown to destroy until it started to bear fruit. In other words, this is an especially clever and malicious enemy that's attacking this field. He's sown this seed knowing that it could set down roots and grow relatively undisturbed until, that is, it had grown mature enough to so entangle its roots with the roots of the crop that it would be nearly impossible to remove without destroying the crop itself. Not only that, but the discovery of this weed would occur so late in the growing season that it would actually be impossible to tear everything up and start over, even if the farmer wanted to. In short, this enemy knows what he's doing. He's attempting to utterly ruin this farmer by completely destroying his crop for the year. In verse 26, the wheat grows up and it begins to produce grain, and it's at this time that the darnel finally begins to reveal itself. The weeds were there the whole time, But they only begin to demonstrate their true character later in the growing process. So they go completely unnoticed until they've begun to do their damage. They're growing there right under the farmer's nose. 
but they're unobserved, indistinguishable from the wheat until it's too late. Verse 27, the slaves become alarmed. Uh, They see this poisonous, dangerous weed springing up in their master's field, and at first they're perplexed how this could happen. They ask the master how this good seed that they planted could produce this poisonous crop. And the master immediately knows what's happened. It might be possible for some weeds to spring up in a field, right? But for this, mass, this vast amount of darnel to spring up right alongside his wheat, when he sowed good seed, well, it's obvious that this is a deliberate act of sabotage. And so he tells his servants, this is what's happened, right? It isn't the fault of the master. There wasn't some error that he performed in the selection of his seed. The fault lies with an enemy who's trying to undermine his estate. Having their answer, the slaves then move on to the next question in verse 28, and they ask the farmer what he wants to do about this weed. They suggest going out into the fields to pull the weed out, but the master declines. He knows that this is only going to destroy the weed in the process. So in verses 29 to 30, he tells his servants to leave the weeds in the field. They should remain until the harvest. And then at the end of the harvest, once the weed is fully developed and once it's easy actually to tell the difference between the wheat and the darnel, then they should separate the one from the other. Oddly enough, the farmer actually tells his slaves to gather the weeds first and destroy them by setting them on fire, and only then to gather the wheat into his barn. And then that's it. That's the end of the parable. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a farmer with sabotaged crop. And just like he did with the parable of the sower, Jesus leaves it at that. He doesn't give any sort of explanation of this parable to the crowds. He doesn't tell them what the parable illustrates what truth it explains he just says the kingdom of heaven is like this and then he leaves it at that and goes on to tell the next parable now if this is all you had to go on this story about this farmer and weeds and if that was it then this parable could be pretty confusing i mean if someone is listening to jesus in faith believing that he's god's messiah And if they're aware of what's happened with the blasphemy of the Spirit back in chapter 12, then they could probably figure out that Jesus is in some way addressing Israel's rejection of His kingdom. In particular, they could probably figure out that Jesus is in some way saying that the kingdom has been sabotaged by an enemy. And if the person had been around to hear the preaching of John the Baptist, as Jesus' disciples were, then maybe they could figure out that there's some reference to judgment going on here in this parable. After all, John the Baptist said that God would cut down every tree that didn't bear fruit and throw it into the fire. John even said that God's winnowing fork is in his hand and that he would, quote, clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So there's some similarities between those statements by John and the end of this parable, which might lead the astute listener to determine that Jesus is talking about some kind of judgment in this parable. But at the same time, the exact meaning of the parable, at this point, would be unclear. Obviously, there's this focus on the dialogue at the end. That's where Jesus spends most of his time in the parable. But who or what is this parable talking about? What are the objects behind the symbolism of this parable? It's practically impossible to figure out without some kind of help. Jesus provides that help starting in verse 36. He withdraws from the crowds. He goes back into the house in which he had this confrontation, actually, with the scribes and Pharisees over this blasphemy of the Spirit in chapter 12. And while he's there, the disciples pull him aside and they ask him, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. 
These are faithful men. These are men who are responsive to Jesus' message. But even they aren't entirely sure what the meaning of this parable is. So they ask Jesus what it means. Now, if you notice, the disciples aren't completely ignorant as to the meaning of this parable. They actually call it the parable of the weeds of the field in verse 36. In other words, they're able to perceive the focus of the parable. The point is centered around the weeds of the field. And this assumption is going to be confirmed by Jesus' response. So the weeds are the point of the parable, and the disciples can perceive that. They can see that that's the point, but they're still not quite sure what the parable is saying about the weeds. So they asked Jesus, and Jesus answers their question, beginning in verse 37. Jesus' answer can be broken down into two basic parts. First, he provides a brief glossary of the elements involved in the parable. He explains that the farmer in this instance is the son of man. And that's not an insignificant term. The son of man is a figure who in Daniel 7 is presented before God and is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages might serve him. According to that passage in Daniel 7, quote, His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. According to Daniel 7, the Son of Man is one who will rule over the entire earth on God's behalf. In a word, the Son of Man is the Messiah. He's the one who will establish the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, of course, regularly uses this term to refer to Himself. It's really His title of choice throughout the Gospels. So when Jesus speaks of the sower being the Son of Man, He's speaking of Himself. And He's speaking of Himself as the one who is sent by God to establish God's kingdom specifically. He goes out to sow. And in doing this, He sets out to plant seeds that will one day bear fruit in God's kingdom. Now, I think what's notable about this point is that Jesus is already indicating that the kingdom of heaven isn't going to happen immediately. Again, that was the common expectation in Israel at this time. The Old Testament taught that the Messiah would be sent to establish the reign of God on earth. So everyone assumed that if the Messiah had come, then clearly it was for one purpose, and that was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Well, when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, and then he talks about the Son of Man going out to sow seed, he's already indicating that this isn't going to happen immediately. You sow seed, right? And then you have to wait. It has to grow into a plant before it's ready for the harvest. If the kingdom of heaven is like this, then it means that there's a sense in which the kingdom of heaven is going to be a slow development. It isn't going to be immediate. Now, Jesus is going to expand on this point in greater detail with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven in verses 31 to 35 next week. But the slowness of this kingdom, that concept is evident even here in the parable of the weeds. What does this parable tell us about the kingdom of heaven? It tells us that the kingdom happens slowly. Still, that isn't really the focus here. The parable isn't about the slowness of the kingdom per se. The slowness of the kingdom's growth is a characteristic that provides the conditions necessary for what is the point of the parable, which is the weeds. Jesus continues this glossary in verse 38. He explains that the field represents the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. So whereas the good seed, right, in the parable of the sower was a message, right? It was the word of the kingdom. Here, that seed is actually people. The good seed represents the sons of the kingdom. They're believers. They're those who are scattered across the world by Jesus in order to grow and expand his kingdom. 
The bad seeds represent the sons of the evil one. These are unbelievers who are scattered across the world by Satan to counteract and attack the kingdom's growth. The field, Jesus says, is the world. And pay attention here. I think it's not uncommon to hear that the field here represents the church. And that the picture we have here in this parable is of true and counterfeit believers growing side by side in the church until the end of the age. That's not the picture here. Jesus says that the field is the world. And the picture is of one seed being scattered across the earth for the advancement of the kingdom, and then the other seed being sown amongst this seed in order to hinder its development and stunt its growth. At the beginning of verse 39, Jesus says that the enemy in this parable is the devil. He's the one who's opposed to Christ, and according to this parable, he raises up enemies to attack the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. He's actively working against Christ in his kingdom. That is the enemy in this parable. In the second half of verse 39, Jesus explains that the harvest represents the end of the age, and the reapers represent the angels. At this point, Jesus is playing on a rich tradition of Old Testament theology with this statement. Ever since Israel's original deportation from Jerusalem under the Babylonians, the nation had been scattered across the nations of the earth. Well, the Old Testament taught that one day God would gather together his people Israel and place them back into their land. For example, God promises this in Ezekiel 11, verses 17 to 21. Again, Ezekiel 11. He says this, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will, remove, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their heads, declares the Lord God. There are many other passages like this throughout the Old Testament that speak of the ingathering of Israel at the establishment of the kingdom. Jesus is playing on that concept here when he speaks about the angels going out and gathering in the sons of the kingdom. In fact, if you're paying close attention uh, to that passage I just read from Ezekiel, then you would have noticed that in that passage God also speaks of removing, quote, all the detestable things and all abominations from the people of Israel as they were gathered together. This, too, is something that the Old Testament, Old Testament repeatedly taught Israel to expect at the establishment of the kingdom, the removal of sin and evil. Well, this parallels what Jesus says in verse 41, when he says that during the harvest, the, ga- the angels will gather out of the kingdom, quote, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. This is what Jesus is alluding to when he speaks to, uh, of the angels and the harvest. The close of the age in verse 39 is a reference to the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. This is the consummation of all things. It's the time when the Messiah will establish the kingdom of heaven. If you're familiar with what the Bible teaches about end times, this is the beginning of Christ's millennial reign in particular. Jesus says that this is the harvest. This is when the harvest will happen. It's at the end of the age, the beginning of Jesus' millennial rule over the earth. So that's the glossary, right? That's the symbolic meaning of the things represented in this story. Now, as to what it means, 
as to the secrets that this parable is intending to teach. That comes in verses 40 to 43. That's the second part of Jesus' answer. First, he provides this glossary, and then second, he provides the meaning. So we can see what the parts of the story are. What's the parable about, right? What does it reveal about the kingdom? I think we could be tempted to to examine several different possibilities to that question. For example, there's this part in verse 25 where the the slaves are sleeping while the enemy sows the seed. So perhaps this parable is intending to teach about the need for watchfulness among Jesus' disciples. Perhaps he's saying that because the slaves were not watchful, the enemy was able to sow this harmful seed in the field. Perhaps this is Jesus even telling his disciples that they need to be on alert for false teachers and false converts um, that they produce. There's also this part in verse 29 where the master tells his slaves that they shouldn't tear up the weeds because in doing so they could rip up the weed as well. Clearly this parable refers to the destruction of the wicked, so perhaps it's intended to explain why Jesus is going to delay in judging the world. Maybe he's trying to say that the righteous and the wicked have to live side by side for a particular reason. Perhaps he's explaining why it has to do that. There's even this idea that the darnel and the weed appear to look the same way initially, only to be distinguished from one another once they begin to bear grain. Maybe that's the point of the parable. Maybe the idea is that believers and unbelievers are going to be nearly indistinguishable from one another at times. But if you notice, in verses 40 to 43, Jesus doesn't explain any of these aspects of the story. He doesn't deal with the sleeping men, nor does he give any sort of explanation about how the judgment of the wicked would uproot, so to speak, the righteous, uh, though maybe we could speculate on that. He doesn't even touch on the similarity in appearance between the wheat and the darnel. And that's because none of these parts of the story are the point. The point is in verse 40, when Jesus goes on to explain this parable by saying that just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. That's the point of the parable. The righteous will grow side by side with the wicked until the kingdom is established, and then the wicked will be judged as they are made to suffer eternal punishment for their sins in hell. This parable is about the timing of those events. And to be more specific, it's about the timing of the destruction of the wicked. This parable explains that the kingdom will come slowly, but more specifically in that than that, it explains that the judgment of the wicked will come slowly. Are you catching the difference there? This isn't about the slowness of the kingdom so much as it is about the slowness of judgment. In fact, notice here that there are three verses devoted in this parable to the destruction of the wicked and only one verse devoted to the exaltation of the righteous. That's because this parable is about the destruction of the wicked. As the disciples observed, this is the parable of the weeds of the field. The parable explains that there's going to be this period of time after the coming of Messiah and before the establishment of His kingdom during which the wicked will exist side by side along with the righteous as the kingdom of heaven expands and grows and nears its consummation. Now, I think we may take this granted for today. 
There's nothing shocking about this concept for you and I. And the reason, right, is because we're living in this period of time. We're living in this period where the wheat is growing alongside the weeds. So this isn't really shocking for us because this is all we've ever known. But make no mistake, this was an incredibly new and even startling concept for Jesus' disciples to consider. Once again, the expectation was that after the Messiah came, the kingdom would come right after that. And this included the judgment of the wicked. That was supposed to come right away. The Messiah was going to come to judge the wicked. After all, even John the Baptist said that the winnowing fork right, was already in the Messiah's hand. Then surely, if Jesus is the Messiah, then judgment should be happening right away. That's what the disciples believed the Old Testament taught. That's what Matthew's Jewish readers would have expected as well. But instead, Jesus says that there's actually going to be this period of time after His coming during which He would allow the the unrighteous to grow up and coexist alongside His people, to coexist alongside kingdom citizens while He waited for His kingdom to grow and begin to bear fruit. Judgment would come, But it wouldn't happen until the end of the age. And the end of the age wasn't going to be immediate because there was going to be this intermediate period during which the kingdom would be allowed to grow and expand alongside the wicked. This was shocking at the time. This was unexpected. This was new. The disciples had never heard anything like this before. And when I sit back and reflect on what's going on here, there are two things that I find striking about this passage. First, I find it striking that Jesus even felt the need to give this parable in the first place. I think it's really interesting that Jesus even felt the need to give this parable in the first place. Again, the main point of this parable originally, as it was delivered, was to answer this question that was on the minds of the disciples, or at the very least that Jesus anticipated would be on the minds of the disciples, which was why why isn't God destroying the wicked now? Now, I could be wrong, but I would venture that most of us probably don't ever really wrestle with that question. Like, I doubt that Jesus probably wouldn't have felt the need to tell this parable to most of us today. Because the issue he's addressing here isn't even on our radar. And the question that I find striking is, why not? Why not? I suppose you could maybe chalk that up to expectations. And what I mean by that is exactly what I said before, right? We're living in the time period that Jesus is describing in this parable, and we're living after Jesus has explained this aspect of salvation history to us. So maybe we just don't have the question because we already know the answer. Again, the disciples lived in a time when most people believed that the Scriptures pointed to an immediate judgment, whereas we live in a time when that expectation has been corrected. So maybe that's why we don't ask this question, because we take the right answer to the question for granted. They didn't. That could be true, but I tend to think there's probably more at play here than mere differences in our theology. For example, let me read the opening lines of Psalm 37 to you. Psalm 37, it starts like this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verses 7 to 10 of this psalm, David continues. He says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. 
Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And again, he continues, verse 34, he says, Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. Are you guys hearing this? David just isn't just telling the listener there that the wicked will one day be judged in this psalm, but he's pleading with them to actually be patient for that day, to wait for that day. Think about that for a minute. When was the last time someone had to tell you, fret not yourself because of evildoers? When was the last time someone had to console you with the thought that, quote, in just a little while the wicked will be no more? Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. I would venture that most of us are rarely, if ever, preoccupied with that hope. And yet throughout the pages of Scripture, that's an exhortation that we find over and over again. And I tend to think that this is probably the primary reason that Jesus has to bring this parable up here. It's not just that the disciples expected immediate judgment. Believe it or not, they were actually hoping for it. They were eager for it. And if you're not sure where I would get that idea, just remember that Jesus had to rebuke James and John because when a group of Samaritans were inhospitable to Jesus and the disciples, they wanted to call down fire on them and consume them. You know, John, the apostle of love. Yeah, that guy. He was ready for God to destroy these people for their lack of hospitality. And Jesus had to rebuke him. So no, I'm not just making this up. There's ample evidence of the fact that the disciples didn't just expect judgment, they longed for it. And I would gather that this is why Jesus needs to deliver this parable. And the question that strikes me once again is, why do they seem to long for judgment and not us? It's like I said at the beginning of today's message, you can tell a lot about a person by the things that they're impatient for. Because what they demand instantly is probably reflective of what they consider to be important, what they value. Well, what are you impatient for? I think most of you probably realize already that my goal in preaching isn't simply to give you a list of to-dos. I try to stay away from saying things like, you know, here are five things to do with this parable. I prefer instead to try to show you what the Scripture says about how to think rather than merely what to think because that's when I believe Christians start to experience sustained growth. That's when they start to be really transformed internally, when they, uh, when they uh, don't only accept a new set of facts, but when they also allow that set of facts to alter the order of their priorities and values. Well, where passages like this one are helpful is by contrasting our priorities and values against the priorities and values that are exalted in Scripture to see if they match up. And in that light, I would venture that what passages like this one show us is that most of us, if not all of us, right, are not holy. 
And I'm not just pointing the finger at you here. I can look at my own life and there are moments when I have glimmers of the kind of longing that Jesus is describing here. In fact, uh, the longer I'm in Christ, the more frequent those moments become. Just last week or so, I was incredibly discouraged by the way the body of Christ sins against each other. I was incredibly discouraged by all the hurt that we do to one another in our ignorance. And in that moment, I started to look out on the world and I could see all the utter shallowness and selfishness of our actions. And it was causing me to ache for the very thing that Jesus is describing here. I was praying to God, come soon, Lord Jesus. Remove all causes of sin and all lawbreakers from among us so that we'll stop hurting each other. And yet I have to admit, those moments are relatively few and far between. Most of the time, I'm actually quite content with this world as it is. And I would imagine that most of you are the same way. You know, you should long for the return of Christ, but you don't. If anything, I imagine for many of you, you might be disappointed if he came back today. And at least part of the reason for that, brothers and sisters, is because you are not holy. In other words, the reason you don't long for the removal of, quote, all causes of sin, verse 41, is because you're still relatively content with your idols. That's the first thing that strikes me about this passage, how it points I think, to our need for serious spiritual reformation. It doesn't point us towards all to, this, to all the solutions for that reformation. It doesn't provide us with a treatment plan, so to speak, but, is, but it does a pretty good job of diagnosing the disease. The reason why so many of us struggle to be filled with the kind of hope that we're supposed to experience at the expectation of Christ's coming is because we've not yet been sufficiently transformed to desire the kinds of things that the Bible promises will occur at that time. And that's a problem because, as I remind you frequently, the Bible tells us that it's actually impossible to obey God without that kind of hope. So my initial take is that this passage should, so, should sober us it should cause us to walk away asking ourselves, Lord, why am I not impatient for your, inter- your return? And more specifically, why am I not eager for the removal of sin? It should cause us to pray, Lord, reform my heart. Teach me how to long for these things. The second thing that strikes me about this passage is how this hope is supposed to transform the way we view the time we live in right now. This passage is supposed to transform the way we view the time we live in right now. Here's what I mean. I'd imagine you guys have all had to wait for something before, right? And I don't just mean that you've been forced to wait against your will. I mean, there's been a time when you've chosen to wait for something. Personally, I think back to when I was trying to drop some weight. In case you don't know, uh, there's no real secret to weight loss. There's just needs to be a calorie deficit. It's as simple as that. Take in less calories than you burn and eventually you'll lose weight. Anyways, this means that in order to lose weight, there's going to be some discomfort. Again, there's really no way to avoid that. You have to burn more calories than you take in. And that means for a little while, your body isn't going to be entirely happy. Just how unhappy it is, is depending on how much weight you want to drop and how quickly. You don't have to be miserable, per se. In fact, I was amazed how easy it was so long as you remain disciplined. But at the very least, it means you're probably going to have to eat less than what you're normally accustomed to eating. 
Now, after the weight's off, it's not very hard to maintain that. You, you still need to show some self-control, but it's much easier to maintain your weight than to drop it. All this to say, when I was trying to lose weight, I sometimes found myself low on energy or tired, and I see a piece of pizza sitting there in front of me, and I have to say, I can't do that. I can't eat that. It's going to blow my calorie total for the day. And the reason why I do that is because as much as I wanted to eat that piece of pizza, right, I wanted to drop weight more. And so I tell myself, just, just eight more weeks, just, just six more weeks, and I can go back to feeling normal again. That's kind of how desires work, right? We often have competing desires. And if there's something that we want bad enough, then we'll sometimes delay the fulfillment of some lesser desire in order to see the greater desire fulfilled. Well, what's interesting about this passage is that if the thing we're anticipating at the return of Christ is really good, then there must be something even better that we should be looking for, something that God even must be looking for, for Him to determine that we must all wait for that anticipated end. Now, what is that? If the removal of all sin and lawbreakers is supposed to be really good, then what's better than that? What could cause God to say, I'm going to give that to you, but first, I'm going to need you to wait. It's right there in the parable, isn't it? Why doesn't the sower tear up the weeds the very moment they're discovered? Verse 29, it's because uprooting the weeds will cause the wheat to be uprooted as well. You guys see that? The idea is that as bad as the weeds are, as much as they may attack and perhaps even stunt the growth of the wheat, the master is still anticipating that this wheat will grow and mature and eventually bear fruit. In other words, he's still anticipating a harvest. And for the sake of that anticipated harvest, the master says, no, let's not tear the weeds up just yet. Let's wait. What is this harvest, this fruit that God's anticipating? Again, the answer is in the parable. The good seed, right? What does it represent? We've covered this, right? Verse 38, it's the sons of the kingdom. The field is the world, and the wheat is the good seed that's been sown and will eventually bear fruit. In other words, why does God wait? Why does He delay His judgment? He waits because He's anticipating the fact that there's still good seed out there that has yet to bear fruit, and He wants to receive the fullness of His harvest. This thought is confirmed in other parts of the Scripture as well. I know I bring this passage up all the time, but 2 Peter 3.9, Peter addresses this same question about the delay in God's judgment by writing, quote, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. There we see, once again, God is waiting. Why? Because He's anticipating the fact that that there's still some who will believe, and he doesn't wish that any should perish. I'll just point out, incidentally, this should probably give us some hint as to when the end will happen. It will occur when that expectation is gone, when there is no longer any others to bring in. Now, I'll just let you go ahead and chew on the implications of that thought on your own for a little bit, because there's a lot to think about there. However, what I'd like you to consider this morning is how this thought should transform the way you see your life right now. Christian, I sure hope you realize, I sure hope you realize that this world is not your hope. 
It is not your hope. I know that we act like it sometimes. Sometimes we can even feel like it. But this is not as good as it gets. There is something far, far better awaiting you in heaven when chiefly the enjoyment of God Himself right, will become apparent to you. You'll be able to enjoy Him completely and fully apart from any hindrance of sin. Even if you're not entirely sure of what that's like enough to really hope in that, at the very least, you should be able to know that the Scripture promises you, right, that one day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's Psalm 84.10. David says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper, right, which is to say a, a servant. I'd rather be a mere servant in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Do you understand you could live here on this earth for the next thousand years, and if after that you could live for just one day in the presence of God and behold His glory with an unveiled face, unhindered by any sin, you'd say, you know, if I could do that again, I'd trade in that thousand years for just one more day. One more day in His presence. What we're going to experience when we get to heaven is unspeakably sweet. What we experience here doesn't even compare Well, if that's the case, then why would you try to live as if this was the reward? As if this was the final destination? It's not. It's not even close. Again, what I think is most useful about this passage is how it challenges us to rethink the way we look at the world. And in doing that, it not only reminds us of where our hope is supposed to be, but even how we're supposed to view the time that we spend here right now. In particular, it reminds us that the only reason why God has delayed His promises, this great promise that we're going to have when we see God, the only reason He delays that is because He's yet anticipating a still greater harvest. That should change dramatically the way you look at this life at a fundamental level. Again, I know I say this all the time, but I think it bears repeating. Because there are many forces that work in this world to cause you to forget it. Again, there is an enemy out there who's actively sowing weeds to try to stunt the growth of the harvest. So I say it often, but it bears repeating so you don't forget it. You need to conform your life to this realization. And that's the fact that God has left you here for one purpose, Christian. And that's to advance His kingdom. He waits because He's anticipating a greater harvest. And the idea is that he's left you here, the wheat, because he's waiting for that harvest to come to completion. That should change the types of decisions that you're making right now, day to day. And with that in mind, I want to close this morning by asking you to examine yourself in light of this passage's implications. Ask yourself, number one, am I living in light of the hope of Christ's return? Am I living in light of the hope of Christ's return? Do I long for the holiness that God will provide for me in that day? Is freedom from sin a reward? And if not, why not? And then number two, am I directing my life towards the advancement of the kingdom now? Am I directing my life towards the advancement of the kingdom now? In other words, since your hope should not be here, do you therefore see your life as a means rather than as an end in and of itself? 
Are you directing the very temporary and transitory elements of this life toward the eternal and unchanging elements of heaven? Because this is what the parable of the weeds should teach us. And with that in mind, let us pray that God would make us impatient. I know that impatience isn't normally considered a virtue, but as I think we'll see in the epistle to the Philippians, when it's in the right context, when it's impatience for the right things, then it most definitely is. In fact, it's even the fuel that will drive us to bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven. So let's pray that God would make us impatient for the harvest of the next life so that we may be faithful to bear fruit now. Let's pray.